0: Welcome to Files on Air, an Air AA podcast series where contributors from AA Files read their work. AA Files is the Architectural Association's journal of record and promotes original and engaging writing on architecture and its related fields. In this episode, you will hear Madeline Kessler and Manojé Verghese, curators of the British Pavilion at the 2021 Venice Architecture Biennale, read their text, Powers of Public Space. In the piece, they examine some of the ideas that inform their biennale display, including case studies on rewilded greens, play streets, and public libraries. You can read the piece in AA Files 78.
1: Powers of Public Space At the beginning of April 2020, cities around the world fell quiet. The advent of a global pandemic shuttered inhabitants behind closed doors. Seismologists who have been measuring the Earth's movements, the creaking of weighty plates shifting over time, as well as human activity ricocheting down from the surface, announced that this was the quietest the planet had ever been. An up to 50% reduction in human noise led to a period that some geologists described as an anthropos. The skies were quiet, the roads were empty, and the air was cleaner while offices, restaurants, shops and social centres lay dark. Yet life was not wholly absent. In pockets around the city, alternative and essential activities, new and existing forms of community were formed, and spaces that had long lain dormant suddenly sprang to life or inhabited in new ways. As the domestic realm expanded to consume our everyday lives, people could no longer be contained by four walls and a roof. Instead, city dwellers looked to the parks and streets, to nature and neighbourliness for some sort of familiarity and hope. Many living in cities without cars, bikes or public transport networks in operation found themselves limited to how far they could walk. Instead of retreating into their homes at the end of a long and weary day, city dwellers began to explore their local areas, walk the winding streets and traverse the roads which were suddenly quiet. A heightened sense of localism erupted in neighbourhoods around the world with countless mutual aid societies and spontaneous community schemes forming in the first months of the pandemic. Yet the need to be outside far outstripped the supply of public space, with governments, local authorities, private institutions and community groups having to think creatively about utilising new spaces or safely monitoring existing ones to allow the public greater access to nature. Public space has been described as the stage on which the city's social and cultural life is acted out. While architects often talk about the importance of it, there are very few spaces left in today's towns and cities that are collectively owned. From gated squares and historic estates such as Bedford Square in London, to large monocultural developments such as Hudson Yards in New York, cities around the world are witnessing a proliferation of privatised public space. In the UK, financial pressures have controlled the evolution of the city since Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979 with public land being sold for private development, often to foreign investors, without public knowledge. This has created huge inequalities with regard to the types of public space provided and who has access to them, a trend that has only been highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. For the British Pavilion at the 17th Venice Architecture Biennale, we explored how to reframe privatised public space beyond the binary of public space always being understood as goods, and private space always being bad. Titled The Garden of Privatized Delights, the pavilion takes inspiration from Hieronymus Bosch's triptych, The Garden of Earthy Delights, painted between 1490 to 1510. The painting frames the middle ground of earth depicted on the central panel between two extremes, the utopia of the Garden of Eden or heaven on one side and the dystopia of hell on the other. To develop our concept, we began by digitally uninhabiting Bosch's painting, revealing a blank landscape devoid of life and activity. It was eerily reminiscent of inaccessible, privatised spaces. Our interpretation of the painting, The Garden of Privatised Delights, presents Bosch's Heaven as the utopia of the commons before the Enclosures Acts of the 1750s and onwards. Hell as the dystopia of total privatisation, and the middle ground as privatised public space. The latter, we argue, offers an opportunity to create more inclusively programmed and inhabited places in towns and cities. We want to challenge the polarisation of private and public as a tool to create divisions within society. Instead, we aim to rethink how architects can work with the public in order to invent new frameworks for improving use, access and ownership of Britain's public spaces. The rapid increase of privatised public space within the UK has frequently been problematized, although little has been done to address its root causes. To start with, we might ask, is public space the same as publicly owned space? While public space describes those areas accessible to everyone, Publicly owned space, the political economist Brett Christophers explains, is called public land not because the public necessarily has a right to access and use it, but because the public, via the state that represents it, ultimately owns it. Christopher's book, The New Enclosure The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain, estimates the fire sale of public land by the British government since 1979 to be around 2 million hectares, or about 10% of the entire British landmass. There is a great deal of nostalgia for a time when the state funded public space, but what does it really mean for a space to be publicly owned? Currently, it is estimated that only 4% of all land in the United Kingdom is still considered common land, which means it is both collectively owned and able to be accessed by all. As part of the wider research initiative Who Owns England?, a mapping project by Guy Shrubsall and Anna Powell-Smith aims to provide greater transparency around English land ownership, by combining publicly accessible data with private information obtained by the Freedom of Information requests and forensic research. When Shrubso and Powell Smith started the project in 2005, only 50% of all land in England and Wales was documented on the Land Registry's website. Currently, around 85% of land in England and Wales is registered, but there are still 5.2 million acres that are unaccounted for. Even when land is registered, it is often not attributed to a specific owner. Ownership is crucial, since what appears to be a public space is often private, with land use rules determined by the owner. For example, in 2011, Occupy protesters were removed from London's Paternoster Square, revealing that what seemed to be a public square was actually owned by the Mitsubishi Estate Company. Privatised public space should not be understood solely through the limiting acronym of POPs, Privately Owned Public Space, which refers to paved squares and new developments. Instead, it encompasses a range of spaces from playgrounds and high streets to pubs, gated squares, sky gardens, and a whole host of spaces in between. In March 2020, the Greater London Authority launched a draft public space charter as part of the London Plan. The documents set out the rights and responsibilities for owners, users and managers of privately owned public spaces so that they can be held to common standards and ensure parity in how they are used and accessed. The eight principles of the Charter set out attributes that any public space should possess regardless of ownership. Public welcome, openness, unrestricted use, community focus, free of charge, privacy and data, transparency and good stewardship. For example, the principle of openness states, public space should be open to all and offer the highest level of public access possible. It should be understood as a part of London's continuous public realm, irrespective of land ownership. Though it is not a new phenomenon, privatised public space and private landowners increasingly control the way cities operate around the world. These spaces are becoming places of class privilege, isolating people from certain parts of the city. Physical, psychological and emotional accessibility to space is restricted, impacting well-being and contributing to social problems and inequality. The philosopher and sociologist Henri Lefebvre argued that every society in history shapes a distinctive social space to meet its social and economic requirements. Even before the pandemic began, we were at a critical turning point to intervene and find opportunities within privatised public space or relinquish it for good. The city needs to be valued as a shared resource. Fresh models of public-private partnership are necessary, where new sources of funding, hybrid programming and nuanced socially driven value systems can play a role in altering the course of urban development. In this text, which is inspired by Charles and Ray Eames's documentary Powers of Ten, 1968, we look at three different scales of British public space under threat. The park, the street, and the library. Zooming in to understand how these spaces operate at the scale of a country, a city, and a neighbourhood or borough, we outline their powerful and important social use and how they have been threatened by a lack of funding and imagination over time, as well as the impact of the current global health crisis on their continued existence. Finally, we propose ways in which these spaces can be reimagined in order to better serve the public in the future. The rewilded green. As much of the world found itself under national lockdowns in the
0: spring of 2020, people's relationship to neighbourhoods and outdoor public spaces seemed to change overnight. In the United Kingdom, the days were getting longer and warmer, while the population was ordered to spend most of its time at home. People flocked to parks in the little time permitted for outdoor exercise to watch spring unfurl before their eyes. As human activity in cities slowed, nature filled the void, with foxes roaming the streets, fish being spotted in the usually murky canals, and even the odd herd of wild goats or boar appearing in some cities. Access to green space became essential as the first few weeks of lockdown multiplied into months. Being outdoors was one of the limited activities that government advice permitted, saying exercise is still important for people's physical and mental well-being, as a press release from April 2020 read. Those with private gardens were a distinct advantage to those living in dense urban areas with limited outdoor space. Parks, greens, commons, marshes and squares filled this void and were immediately oversubscribed by local residents vying for a patch of grass or a space on the path. As parks became overcrowded, gates turned into pinch points, raising concerns that they would become sites for transmission. In response, some parks, including Victoria Park in East London, were closed to stymie the spread. Amidst this, a national campaign took seed, which aimed to open up a particular private typology that contained a surprising 300,000 acres of green space the golf course. As all group sports were suspended, the campaign, led by Green MP Caroline Lucas, called for golf courses to open their grounds to the public and relieve the pressure on parks. As Lucas argued, if we can use conference centers as pop-up hospitals and hotels to accommodate NHS staff, then surely we can use golf courses to give people somewhere to get fresh air and exercise while keeping a safe distance from others. This was supplemented by an investigation by Shrubsall, who used the Land Registry's corporate and commercial dataset to show that 49% of the 11,000 acres of green space that comprise golf courses in Greater London alone are owned either by local authorities or the Crown Estate, with the remaining 51% owned by private golf clubs and other enterprises. With so many golf courses being revealed to have municipal ownership, why were they not being opened up to the public immediately to alleviate pressure on parks and other green spaces? Suddenly, the verdant landscapes dotted with holes and tweed-seated players were filled with walkers, picnickers, children cycling, sunbathers, and even horse riders. The opening of these exclusive spaces for the first time was a success. The range of activities and diverse groups of people that began using the golf courses was testament to the role that they could play in the community. An example was the Hollingbury Golf Course in Brighton, which is part of the South Downs National Park and doesn't have any fences delimiting its boundary. The public had always had access to parts through the golf course, but never quite to the extent granted during the first lockdown. During this time, the community suddenly found itself able to spread out across the green and enjoy a range of activities. But as summer approached and the easing of lockdown brought golf back to the courses, a struggle emerged over who would have access to the space going forward. The United Kingdom has around 2,000 golf courses, however, a KPMG report shows that the number of golfers across the country has dropped by around 20,000 between 2018 and 2019, while the number of courses has remained unchanged. Hollingbury is one of six golf courses within a five-mile radius of Brighton's city centre, with another council-owned course, Waterhole, just two miles to the west. Is this the most relevant and positive use of green space for Brighton's residents? Like most issues around access to public space, this question had been a point of contention prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, as the 10-year management contracts for both Hollingbury and Waterhall were due to expire at the end of March 2020. The pandemic-induced lockdown only highlighted the need for the question to be addressed even more urgently. In October 2019, Brighton & Hove City Council began to market 25-year management leases for its golf courses, with invitations for bids outlining alternative uses. Proposals competed for attention, with some calling for the land to be reused for housing. It was also suggested that the sites should remain as golf courses, while others proposed that they should be rewilded as ecological sanctuaries. In January 2020, a new contract was awarded for Hollingbury to continue being used as a golf course, much to the dismay of local campaigners. However, the less frequented waterhole will be part of a new experiment to rewild the course with a unique flora and fauna that thrive in the chalky grassland of the South Downs an environment that has been described as a rainforest in miniature. The differing approaches to the two courses show a need to review the ways in which large swathes of public and privatised public spaces are currently used. Cities should not be static and public spaces need to be varied and benefit the evolving needs of the local community. The first UK lockdown allowed for new activities and experiments to be trialled on golf courses as initiatives that ought to happen more frequently and without the prompt of a global crisis. It tested the ways in which space can be shared for different activities at different times of day for different groups. Waterhole was able to transform into something new and exciting, benefiting both the community and the environment. While Hollingbury continues to be used as a golf course, those who remember the freedom they enjoyed from March to June 2020 could perhaps be able to push for access to its greens in some capacity in the
1: future. The Intergenerational Streets The freedom seen on the Greens should not be limited to green space only. The largest public space in most cities is in fact the street. In London alone, 80% of all public space is comprised of streets, an important space not just for the movement of bodies, but also for people to come together informally in times of celebration and protest. As lockdowns began, Streets, which had been dominated by vehicular traffic, were suddenly empty. Soon, they began to team with people going for daily walks and runs, children playing games, socially distanced coffee mornings and more. This important social space could easily be expanded to do more. Play is widely acknowledged as an essential part of a child's mental well-being and development of creative, social and life skills. The street was the original playground, but the widespread introduction of the motor car in the post-war decades changed this. Over the past 40 years or so, we have seen play increasingly constrained to specific zone spaces with specially designed equipment. Most children have far less freedom to play outside than their parents or grandparents had. Though the world may have changed, the need for children to play outside with friends close to their homes remains constant and the closure of playgrounds, nurseries, and schools during the lockdowns made it necessary to rethink play as a matter of urgency. Cities were quickly adapted for play with the help of new rules making it easier to turn streets into play areas, and many neighbourhoods came together to adopt a bottom-up approach to creating play streets. The play streets model was developed in 2009 on a street in Bristol by parents and co-founders of the grassroots movement Playing Out. The movement defines play streets as spaces organized by neighbors on their own streets, creating a safe space for children to play out together on their doorstep. They typically allow children to play freely without organized games or activities. In practice, this means children cycle, scoot, skate, chalk, skip, hopscotch, kick a ball around and make up games. The model involves neighbors coming together to close their streets to traffic for a couple of hours creating a space safe for children to play in. It encourages healthier streets and has a positive impact on children and communities' mental health and well-being. Play streets also help to strengthen communities by encouraging social interaction between neighbours. Today, many councils advocate for the creation of play streets in their boroughs, but prior to the pandemic, the overall take-up of the concept had been quite slow, especially in areas where the local authorities were not so proactive communities lacked the knowledge of how to access online resources provided by Playing Out and London Play Streets, which offer templates and step-by-step guides to setting up play streets. The speed of events during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic changed this. In a July 2020 roundtable with the Greater London Authority exploring how cities might adapt to COVID-19, it was refreshing to hear public sector officials talk about testing ideas quickly and without lengthy trials. By encouraging regeneration teams to adopt an attitude of think fast, act fast, fail fast, their ambition is now to test out ideas in the city quickly and learn from mistakes to improve them on the ground. At the roundtable, Lucy Musgrave, founding director of Publica and Mayor's design advocate, said, Last week, I was part of the discussion around child-friendly cities, which raised a whole series of issues about rights and inequality for what's happening now in terms of COVID, but also in terms of the climate emergency. There is an opportunity here to join all these things up. The street is on people's doorsteps. It can be a vital public space with equipment that children could cluster around. And in addition, local play enables children to access toilets in their homes. While most public realm improvements cost money, play streets do not. We can learn a lot from this bottom-up approach to play and encourage the creation of more play streets going forward by making local communities aware of how to go about installing a play street. As a result of COVID-19, Transport for London's Streetscape plan was accelerated to provide more cycle lanes, expanded pedestrian access, play streets and other initiatives to pedestrianise the city, Playful road markings, better signage, well-designed and interactive street furniture and landscaping are all easy measures to transform streets into spaces for public enjoyment. A good example is design studio Europa's playful graphic interventions on Station Road in Harrow. But the street does not have to be for children only. By using play as a catalyst, An intergenerational and collective street can provide a safe and healthy space for creativity, discussions, socialising and learning. The Community Library. If the high street is the backbone of all UK
0: towns and cities, then the library is its civic heart. It is not only a space in which to borrow books and pore over their pages in cosy corners. It has also become a community centre, a meeting point, a site of knowledge exchange, a help desk and an internet access point. A 2012 report produced by the Society of Chief Librarians revealed that public libraries in the UK held 92 million books and that more than 60% of Britons own a library card. The health benefits of libraries are also considerable. A 2009 study carried out by MindLab International at the University of Sussex showed that in comparison to typical heart rates and stress levels, reading reduces stress levels by 68%. After only six minutes of reading, participants' heart rates fell considerably and muscle tension eased. Libraries contribute to further lowering these levels through their promotion of reading and social activities, such as book clubs, community groups, and conversation. Reading has also been shown to limit dementia in elderly people. The library can be a fixed building, a mobile collection, or a satellite within other public services, such as youth centers or care homes. As a public resource, libraries are an important tool in democratizing the access to information. Over time, this has evolved to also include digital resources, something which became crucial with the enforcement of homeschooling during the pandemic. This laid bare the huge digital divide that exists in the UK. However, the typology of the public library in the UK has always been contentious. It was first introduced through the Public Libraries Act of 1850 as a result of the Victorian Free Library Movement, which campaigned to improve education through access to libraries. Despite evidence of the success of libraries across Europe, the British government was concerned about the cost of implementing this service across the country, as well as the social transformation that more equal access to knowledge might bring about. Compromise was achieved by imposing strict conditions on where libraries could be built. These were based on concentrations of the population in any given site and local referenda. The resources that local authorities could use to pay for the service were also restricted, During the 20th century, the National Library Service was reformed by a series of acts which transferred responsibility from local authorities to county councils to central governments and back again. Today, libraries are governed by the Public Libraries and Museums Act of 1964, which tasks local authorities with providing a comprehensive and efficient library service, supervised by the Department of State for culture, media, and sport. In the past decade, these crucial spaces of community and learning have faced further threats. A fifth of all libraries in the UK have been forced to close since 2010 as part of the Conservative government's austerity drive. Salaries and salaried staff have plummeted, with the remaining services being kept alive by volunteers. While the latter has been celebrated as an example of community empowerment, volunteers are often left with no alternative than to get involved in order to save their local library. It has also meant that what should be essential publicly funded spaces, providing equitable services across all locations, are in fact inconsistent in terms of resources, services and staffing. For example, in Lincolnshire, the 35 libraries that existed in 2017 received funding from a range of sources, including the local authority. These funds varied from year to year, and as Laura Swarfield wrote in The Guardian that same year, no two libraries are alike, and that is just within one county." The future of the individual library is entirely contingent on the goodwill of volunteers and the local authority or funding body. The National Library Service is tragically becoming a thing of the past. As with many essential public spaces, the pandemic has highlighted the library as a typology under threat. During the lockdowns, libraries had to close their doors, preventing access to physical books, computers and the Internet, as well as its social spaces. While access to digital services soared during the lockdowns, those who relied on the library for their internet access were suddenly at a huge disadvantage. Healthcare, education, work, exercise, social activities, grocery shopping, and much more moved online, creating a digital divide between those who could access the internet and those who could not. In 2011, 23% of the British population did not have an internet connection at home. In the same year, the United Nations declared that access to the internet was a basic human right. For those without internet access at home, public libraries uphold that right. Over the past decade, as funding for all civic services have been cut, new hybrids have emerged that fold job centers, credit unions, and post offices into the library. For every closure of a library, the loss is often compounded tenfold, as all of its additional services are also lost. How can these important spaces not only be saved but multiplied and enhanced? The library should be understood as more than a public space— It is an extension of spaces of education and could perhaps access better funding if it was defined in this way. Such a recategorization might help to preserve existing libraries and provide more resources for new spaces to be built. But this change would need to happen at a policy level in order to be widely accepted. For every library you create, you install and maintain a community.
1: Privatized Public Space As we move from rewilding golf courses to expanding the potential of the street to rethinking the provisions of libraries, it becomes apparent how well-designed public spaces are at the heart of any functioning city. But with a long-term lack of investment from the public sector, it is time to invent new models to preserve and reimagine these important spaces and activities. As shown, this can be achieved through earlier and more substantial community involvement public-private partnerships that are held to account and alternative sources of funding and cross-programming. Writing in the Financial Times in April 2020, the author and political activist Arundhati Roy noted, Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. The pandemic has put further pressure on typologies that were already under threat, from pubs to high streets. But it has also been a catalyst for change, prompting institutions to act rather than ignore. Architects have an important role to play in determining the future of public space. They are uniquely placed as people who can design, build, communicate and facilitate conversations that bring people together. When we entered the competition to curate the British Pavilion at the 17th Architecture Biennale in 2019, we never imagined that two years later, we would be living in a pandemic with intermittent lockdowns. However, this has made discussions around access and ownership of public space more urgent than ever. The Garden of Privatized Delights highlights the fact that a key barrier to rethinking privatized public space is a binary way of viewing the world. Contemporary society is deeply divided, when in fact it should be finding a middle ground to grapple with complex issues. As we moved across scales of public space and analysed how to prioritise both the funding and imagination needed to adapt these spaces for post-pandemic cities, it became clear that each of these spaces hold an enormous potential to create communities. As urban activist Jane Jacobs wrote in 1961, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody, only because and only when they're created by everybody. By learning from the rapid changes implemented during the pandemic, it is our hope that a more inclusive future for privatised public spaces can be made possible. Thanks for listening to this episode.
0: Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.